Again, as I mentioned before, you're in for a special treat. Not only have we had uh, Dr. Camp, who's led us in worship and, and the beautiful singing, you're going to be even more blessed because in just a few seconds, I'm going to go sit down and you're going to get to have a, a real preacher for, for one Sunday. So we're excited. I, I just want you to know in, in visiting uh, uh, just a minute ago or last night with um, uh, Dr. S uh, Scott, uh, McDowell and his lovely wife Kay, I was saying, I was asking them, how, how can I introduce you? What can I say? And he says, this is, this is not about me at all. Uh, and it just, it warmed my heart. And I realized within just a short period that, that he may have the body of Goliath, but he has the heart of David. Yes. And we're just so thankful that it is his humility his love for his students and his love for the Lord that has allowed him to, to make the trip over with Kay. And they've, they've stayed here in Hobbs and we've, we've given him some beautiful weather. Uh, and he's going to be presenting the lesson. Uh, but most importantly, we just believe that, that God is going to be speaking. And so uh, I want to ask him to come up here, if, if you don't mind. And I want to offer a, a prayer that, that God is, is not only going to work through you, but he's going to work in us so that, that we can uh, hear what he has to say. Father God, I just I thank you for this man who has, who has served you faithfully for so many years. And Lord, I just I pray that, that as, as wonderful as he is, uh, I pray that you will just move him aside and that you will be the one who speaks and you will be the one who is glorified. Uh, today. Lord, we just thank you again for your son, Jesus. And because of his sacrifice, we are here to celebrate him and the life he offers to us. It's the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. 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 Real quickly, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Thank you, Doug. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open to Genesis chapter 38. We're going to be looking at the scripture here in just a moment. Let me get my, I always set this alarm, I tell people it doesn't mean anything, it just makes everybody feel better when I do that. But uh, we're going to be looking at scripture here in just a moment, and uh, we'll be in Genesis 38 and, and uh, some of that context. <clears throat> it is good to be with you. Uh, Lubbock Christian University has been an incredible blessing in, in my life. We tell people uh, it kind of chose us before we chose it or something like that. My son who's my middle son, chose to come to Lubbock Christian back in 2018 to play basketball. He's 6'11". You think I'm tall, Doug? He's, he makes me look little. And uh, so we fell in love with the institution, and then whenever we had the opportunity to come serve, it was just a wonderful fit. But I'm so thrilled. Let's, let's recognize this, this young group of uh, our choir members, aren't they? <laughs> and Kay and I were talking last night about the joy and the fun you all are going to have over the next few days as you travel around to different places. The memories you're going to make are just spectacular. And I want to thank this congregation for opening up your homes. I grew up in western Pennsylvania in churches that made this look like a mega church. 
I mean, we planted a church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. The first Sunday we had 18 people, and six of them had the same last name as me. So when we did, when college groups would come in and, and we would open up our home, I mean, I know it's a joyful experience, and so we're grateful that you've done that. And I can tell you these, these are representative samples of what kind of students are at Lubbock Christian University we want you there. Brett Gelber's in the back. We'd love to have anybody that's got an interest at all uh, to, to share that. And we've got Brevin. Brevin, would you stand up real quick? Okay, one of your own right there. And I know uh, Vice President McCool over at uh, New Mexico Junior College is proud of his son. What I think you ought to be proud of is his walk-up song is Shout Hallelujah. So, you know, I, I, you may sing Shout Hallelujah, but if you do, he may walk up here. So it may, it may create a little bit of a distraction. But I'm telling you what, that makes me proud, and it ought to make you proud that that's your son's walk-up music. That's kind of cool. All right, we're in Genesis chapter 38. We just, uh, we just read, uh, Doug just read for us Genesis 49, but I want to read to you a text from Genesis chapter 38. And I'm beginning in verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give, what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road of Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her besides the men who live there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute there. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but she, you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns thee, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shalah. And he did not sleep with her again. Let's pray. God, we're, we're thankful for this day, and we've already prayed and, 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 and given you glory for the fact that you're present with us. And God, I just pray that you would move among us in a special way. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And as Doug prayed, I pray that you would speak through me, that your Holy Spirit would fill me, and that your Spirit would move among us to open us up to hear a word from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When careful students of Scripture get together to discuss the origins of the Genesis narrative, they'll sometimes talk about whether or not the story as we have it, and particularly at the end of Genesis, is dependent on another ancient Egyptian tale called A Tale of Two Brothers. 
And it really is fascinating when you dig into it. A Tale of Two Brothers is features the older brother Anupu, the younger brother Bata, and it really is a fascinating story because in the, this ancient Egyptian tale of two brothers, the younger brother Bata moves in with his older brother Anupu. Anupu's wife kind of gets designs on the younger brother. He's well built and handsome, and she begins to try to seduce the younger brother Bata. So you have an older woman trying to seduce a younger man. It's kind of awkward. He steadfastly refuses her advances. And finally, the woman's scorn makes false accusations against the younger brother. He's, he's tried to take advantage of me. She accuses him to her husband, Anupu, and there is a falling out between the two brothers, as you can imagine, and they are in a literal death fight. And in the ancient Egyptian tale of two brothers, Batah is actually able to convince his older brother, I'm innocent, I didn't do anything, I didn't, I didn't try to seduce her, she tried to seduce me. And in the ancient Egyptian tale of two brothers, Anupu goes back and kills his wife. <laughs> kind of a different ending than anything in Scripture, but if you know your Bible stories well, that has an uncanny resemblance to something that we know pretty well. Do you know the story that that sounds a little bit like? Joseph and who? Yeah, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. The, you know, we'd give you a, a star if we were in vacation Bible school. Good job. Well, here's what I'm here to tell you. I don't know if the ancient Egyptian tale of two brothers was the source for that story or not. Believe me, I believe it, it, it happened just as Scripture says it happened. But here's what I can tell you with certainty. The last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis is, in fact, a tale of two brothers. And it's one of the greatest stories of grace and redemption that you'll ever hear in your life. And yet the great tragedy is that we have often missed it because we've ignored the other brother Judah. What we typically like to do is, is make the last 14 chapters of, of Genesis all about the exploits of Joseph in Egypt. And I'm going to tell you, Joseph's is a wonderful story. And it's a story that I, I want to tell because Joseph does do some wonderful things. We, we like to tell it right before kids go off to college, right? Hey, you're going to go to that far country and you're going to face temptation there. Make sure that you stay true to your values just like Joseph did. And it is wonderful. And we ought to tell it. But I will no longer tell it in isolation. Because this other brother Judah that we just read about. And, you know, I, I realize when I read that story, and it uses that P word so many times, that there are parents saying, I sure wish I'd have sent my kids out with those three to six-year-olds, you know. And I'm not looking forward to that lunch conversation when the questions start coming. This is what, this is what happens with uh, that story. I, I, I have, I have uh, two degrees from two Christian universities. I actually got three degrees from three Christian universities, but two in Bible. And I can tell you, I don't remember any of my professors at Freed Hardeman or at Lipscomb University ever touching the story of Judah and Tamar. I mean, it's just like, let's just kind of gloss over that one, move on, maybe nobody will notice it. And this is what scholarship does with it. This is Walter Brueggemann, who is a wonderful scholar in the Old Testament, but this is what he said about that text that I just read to you. This peculiar, this peculiar chapter stands alone. Without connection to its context, it is isolated in every way and is most enigmatic. 
It is not evident that it provides any significant theological resource. It is difficult to know in what content it might be of value for theological exposition. For these reasons, our treatment of it may be brief. <laughs> and if you listen carefully to what Brueggemann's saying, he's saying, okay, weird story, don't know why it's there, doesn't seem to fit, we're just going to move on. And in fact, he doesn't even think it ought to be in the narrative. Now, I will tell you, one of the strengths of our heritage in Churches of Christ, and I know we've got our challenges, but one of the strengths of our heritage is the way that it has taught us to read Scripture. And what it has taught us, what it's taught me, is that if you come across something in Scripture and you don't understand it, you don't have the freedom to just jettison that and say, well, that doesn't make any sense, throw that out. What you ought to do when you come across a weird story is dig a little deeper because often there's something really special there. And that is exactly the case of this Judah story, this Judah scandalous thing that's inserted here because it really, it really brings the narrative to life. In fact, I will tell you that the Old Testament narrative of the last 14 chapters of Genesis turns on this seemingly out-of-place Judah narrative. Now, I'll tell you how I discovered this. Years ago when I was preaching full-time, and Doug, I don't know if you know this. Where, where, where did Doug go? I don't see where he is. Okay, Doug. Shortest distance between two points. Anybody know what that is? No, it's not. It's Sunday night to Sunday morning for a preacher. That's the shortest distance between two points. Because it gets there quick, you know. And before I discovered expository preaching, preaching my way through books, I would be, oh my goodness, what am I going to preach next Sunday? And I would just read Scripture and try to find something that stuck. And I remember one of those times, reading through Genesis and stumbling across this story and saying, why in the world is that there? And, and again, the, the commentaries were no help. They're, they're all saying, shouldn't even be there. What in the world? And so I just kept reading and digging. And this is what I found, a little note in the Bible. It's a chronological note that's actually in the narrative. Look at Genesis 38.1. 38.1, at that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of doom named Hira. At that time, Judah left. At what time? That's a chronological note. It sets this story in context, and it tells us this doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not isolated from everything going on around it. This story connects to something else. So, that's the first clue something's going on here. At that time, Judah left. Well, you look up one verse above it, and you see the master storyteller of Genesis is kind of weaving these narratives together, and it says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Oh, meanwhile, Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. Meanwhile, that's what's happened. At that time, Judah left. And it struck me, oh my goodness, what we have here is a, a narrative that's happening at the same time. You have Joseph being sold into slavery, and it's at that exact same time that Judah leaves home. So the time of the two brothers' departure is connected. But you dig a little bit deeper, and you find out it's not just the timing of their departure, but the reason for their departure that is connected. Because when you go up into the narrative and you remember the story, Joseph, for all the wonderful things that he did, Joseph also had some bad qualities. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. <laughs> he liked to tell his brothers about the dreams that he had. And some of those dreams involved them bowing down to him. You know, oh, they even called him the dreamer. Oh, there's dreamer boy, you know. 
So on one of those occasions, you know the story, Daddy doesn't even trust the other brothers. He sends Joseph down to check on them. Joseph goes down to check on them. Here comes the dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. And they decide they're going to kill him. They're going to kill him. And it is Judah who steps up and don't think he's being a good guy at this point. He is showing his bankrupt character at this point. And in 3726, he says, what will we gain? Listen to this. What will we gain if we kill him? Come, let's sell him. <laughs> and he, he is a completely selfish character at this point in the narrative. And he gets all the other brothers to buy in. And so instead of killing him, they sell him and they turn a profit on the deal. And they, they take his coat of many colors and they dip it in goat's blood and they come up with that whole, you know, sort of not really lie to dad, just show him the goat, let him, the goat, uh, goat blood coat, let him draw his own conclusions, right? And so they take that coat back to daddy and daddy, daddy throws a fit. Daddy loses his mind and says, oh my goodness, I will go down to my grave in sorrow. And the text says, that all the brothers and sisters went in to comfort Jacob, but he refused to be comforted. No, I will go down to my grave in sorrow. Now here's what I want to ask you. In a clearly dysfunctional family, which Jacob's was, all right, you got all kinds of mess in Jacob's family, and just let's call it what it is. Multiple, multiple moms, blended family with at least four mothers and a 12 sons and at least one daughter. In a clearly dysfunctional family, what happens when a scheme goes awry? You know what happens. Everybody turns on the schemer. And so, well, it was your idea, Judah. You're the one who came up with this whole scheme, and now it's all blown up in our face. And at that time, Judah left. Here's what I want you to see. Joseph might have been sold out. Judah was forced out. He left, time, he left home at the same time that, that uh, Joseph left home because it got too hot in the kitchen and it was a train wreck and so he leaves and he goes down to the, to the Canaanite people. Now here's, here's what's fascinating. Look at this parallels. This is narrative and, and you see parallels really bring some things to light. So you have both brothers, look at this, both brothers leave home at roughly the same time. Both brothers go to a far country at the same time. Both brothers rise to positions of relative prominence in the far country. Both brothers face sexual temptation in the far country. And both brothers rise to positions of relative prominence in the far country. There are all these parallels that make you start realizing, oh my goodness, something's going on here. This is narrative device. But I want to tell you, it is not the parallels that really make this story meaningful. It is a contrast. Because while Joseph seemingly gets everything right, Judah seemingly gets everything wrong. And it is that, those contrasts that are, that are compelling. I've compiled a list of like 13 separate failures that Judah has while he's in the, the other country, when he's in the far country. From marrying the wrong kind of woman, a Canaanite woman that he raises three sons with, and two of them are struck dead by God. Now, you think Jacob had a you know, dysfunctional family. He doesn't have anything on Judah. Two sons struck dead by God. That's kind of a mess. 
And then you've got choosing the wrong kind of friends, giving in to sexual temptation, going to his daughter-in-law and having an incestuous liaison with his own daughter-in-law. And you say, well, wait a second, Scott, I didn't mean to consent. He wasn't trying to do incest. He's just trying to go to a prostitute. And it doesn't look much better for him, right? I mean, it's a train wreck. And so there is all this mess and yet, that text that, uh, that I read when we started, it actually has a happy ending because, okay, the story is he, he goes down, to this, uh, down the road, he sees her on the side of the road. The reason she's there, because she's destitute, because he hasn't taken care of her, and she's, she's desperate, and she doesn't know what to do, and so she's taking things into her own hands. She dresses up like a prostitute, he gets her pregnant, and then when she turns out to be pregnant, look at how harsh she is. Bring her out and have her burned to death. I mean, no compassion, right? But you remember, she's, she's got, a, she got the ancient American Express card. <laughs> she's got his seal and his cord and his staff as her, as her credit. And so when he, she's being brought out to be burned to death, she sends the seal, the seal and the staff and the cord back to Judah, and she says... Let him know I'm pregnant by the man who owns these and see if he recognizes whose seal and staff and cord these are. And I'm going to tell you, that is, a, that is a moment. And there is a verse here that I don't want you to miss because it is reminiscent of the time when David is confronted by Nathan the prophet. Remember that great moment after David has his worst, darkest moment, commits adultery, then murder. And he is confronted by Nathan the prophet, and Nathan the prophet tells him a little shepherd story, and the old shepherd's heart gets all fired up, and he's, he's talking about that man deserves to die. And Nathan the prophet looks him in the eye and says, Thou art the man. You're the man. And you remember Nathan's res- or David's response to Nathan was, I have sinned. And he's broken, and he's contrite. In a moment that is reminiscent of that, whenever, whenever Judah is confronted with the seal and the staff and the cord, And he simply says this, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. And in a little note that you can just gloss right over in the text if you're not careful and don't pay attention, it says, and he did not sleep with her again. And he did not sleep with her again. What I want you to recognize is that is a turning point in Judah's life. He is is messed up, he is broken, And yet this is a moment where he comes face to face with just how bankrupt spiritually he has become. And so he changes in that moment. He did not sleep with her again, but now he goes back home. But he doesn't go back home this rotten character. He goes back a transformed person. And in every subsequent reference that you have to Judah through the rest of the the book of Genesis, you see hints of that transformed character. We're going to unpack that a little bit more in just a moment. But here's what I want you to see. He's ready to go back home now, and he's changed. But he's a man with a past. He's a man who has skeletons in his closet, and he is a man who has made his share of mistakes. Now that is why The text that Doug read to you is such a momentous text and such a radical testimony to God's grace. Because I don't know if you recognize it, but the text that he read is Genesis 49, 8 to 10, 
That's the great deathbed scene of Jacob after you fast forward and they all, the family's reunited and they're down there in Egypt. And now all the, it's a happy ending. And Jacob has called all the sons in and he's giving blessings to all the sons. And the blessing that he gives to Judah is, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet till Shiloh comes or till he comes to whom it belongs. The obedience of the nations is his. Now, we may not know much about ancient culture, but we know this. What is a scepter for? Who holds a scepter? You tell me. The ruler, the king, right? And so when Jacob says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, what's he saying? Uh, The king's going to come through Judah. The kingly line is going to be through the line of Judah. Who would come through the kingly line? Going to be born here on December 25th. Jesus, now get that. That's ridiculous from human wisdom. If you and I were choosing one of the brothers, one of Jacob's sons, to be the ancestor of Jesus, we would have chosen Joseph, because Joseph got it all right. God chose Judah because God is the God of the great reversal. God is a God of grace. God is a God of second chances. God is a God of redemption. God is a God who goes the extra mile and finds us in our weakest spots and makes beauty out of ashes. That's the God that we serve. And so God said, I don't want you to forget who I am. Genesis is an introduction to God. And God wants us to know what kind of God He is. And it's really been the same thing all the way through Genesis. All of Genesis has been a tale of twos. You know, even Cain and Abel, right? But as the narrative increases, you, and you've got the, the different sons, you've got Isaac and Ishmael, right? And human wisdom said, Ishmael, may Ishmael live before you, God. Abraham says, I'm an old man, it's the only chance I got. God said, no, i got something else in mind. You're going to laugh about this your whole life. His name's going to mean laughter. I'm going to give you Isaac a son from your own loins and from Sarah. And so it's Isaac and Ishmael. And it's Jacob and Esau. And human wisdom said, Esau, he's the man's man. You know, he's going to have a big old woolly beard, woolly arms. And God said, no, i got something else in mind. It's going to be Jacob. And then when, when all of our possible human wisdom says, it's got to be Joseph. Got to choose Joseph. God says, no. I don't want you to forget what kind of God I am. It's Judah. And when you know his story, you're going to know that I'm the God of second chances. I love that story. And and, uh, I want to share three practical applications and we'll be done. So here are the three practical applications. What do you do with that kind of neat story? It's true. Dig into it. You'll find it's true. But what do I do with that? Here it is. Number one, never give up on anyone. Say that with me. Never give up on anyone. Here's the deal. There are people that we think sometimes, right? Oh, they're beyond the pale. <laughs> that person's a mess. That's not how God views people. I got a dear friend who's passed now. I didn't know him till late in his life. And when I knew him, he was his body was racked with AIDS. And his... Family was a train wreck. He had a, a daughter who was just a, a mess and a son who was in rebellion. His wife was a closet alcoholic and they had aborted one son. It was just all this luggage and baggage. But when I knew him, he was passionately pursuing God. 
and he was sold out for Jesus Christ. And he said to me something I'll never forget. He said, Scott, I can never give up on anyone because God did not give up on me. So we never give up on anyone. Number two, never give up on yourself. Never give up on yourself. Because sometimes, you know, it's, it is easier for us sometimes to say, well, we can be gracious, we want to help somebody, we want to be in the redemption business. But then when it's us, when we're the ones who failed, when we're the ones who've messed up, we can't see any way out, and so we give up on ourselves. I want to tell you, as long as there is life, there is hope. I told our graduates yesterday, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. And it doesn't matter how far you go or how much you've done, God will always welcome you back. And that doesn't mean that you continue in your sin, but he says, I want you, I want you to come home. And if the story of the prodigal son teaches us anything, it teaches us about a God who waits and a God who runs and a God who greets and a God who welcomes. Never give up on yourself. And then finally, uh, the final practical lesson is expect God to act. Say that with me. Expect God to act. Now this is the cool thing. I said the narrative turned, the narrative turns on that seemingly out of place, Genesis 38. That's the thing that informs everything else. You're like, why is that there? Well, now I know why it's there, because God is a God of grace. But the high point of the narrative comes later. It's in Genesis chapter 44. And let me just tell you the story quickly. Uh, Genesis 44, you remember the brothers, there's, Joseph rises to prominence. He, he has uh, been in prison, and then he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Seven years, of fam- seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. We know that story. And uh, the king says, you're the guy. I'm going to put you in charge of everything. <laughs> and so Joseph is the guy that all his brothers are bound down to. And when they run out of food back there in Canaan, they come down to him and they get food in Egypt. And he knows them and they don't know him. And it's all this, you know, smoke and mirrors. It's a fascinating story. But the first time they come down there, they buy their food and he puts all their silver back in their sacks. Remember that? And then they run out of food again, and he's questioning them to find out if Benjamin's still alive. They run out of food again, and, and he's told them, you can't come see me unless you bring Benjamin. Well, the old man, Jacob, is not, not about to part with Benjamin. He's had one son lost, Joseph, and he's not going to lose his other son by his beloved wife, Rachel. And so they, he says, you can't take Benjamin. Reuben steps up, and Reuben says, well... I'll I'll be in charge of Benjamin. If I don't bring him back, you can kill my sons. (laughs) Harsh, harsh. Judah steps up and says, I'll take responsibility for Benjamin, and if I don't bring him back, I will bear the guilt before you all my life. Now, recognize how layered that is when he's been bearing the guilt for the loss of Joseph all of his life. But he says, you let me take care of Benjamin. If I don't bring him back, I'll bear the guilt before you all my life. Dad finally signs off. They go down there to Egypt the second time. They go in for a banquet. They are seated in birth order. Benjamin gets a double portion. They get all their money back in their sacks again, unbeknownst to them. And they're leaving town for the second time. And they get just to the city limits. And here comes the posse. (laughs) And this time, there's a little extra treat in Benjamin's sack. They've put Joseph's diviner's cup in Benjamin's sack. And they come out, why'd you steal from us? We didn't steal. Oh, yes, you did. You took my master's diviner's cup. Oh, if anybody did that, we'll put them to death right here and now. (laughs) 
And they start from the oldest to the youngest, start on undoing sacks, and there's no cup, no cup, no cup, no cup, no cup. So you get to Benjamin's sack, and there's the cup. And all the brothers are fighting among themselves. Oh, here we are. And uh, they go back to face Joseph, and Joseph says, I'm a merciful man. I'm not going to put all y'all in slavery or bondage. I'm just taking the one. <laughs> I'll just take the one. And so Judah steps up. And Judah gives a, an impassioned plea before Joseph, his brother. And we had the text up there. Let's put that text up there again. This is the high point of the narrative. Joseph steps up and he retells that story. I'm sorry, Judah steps up and he retells that story before Joseph. And he said, my, my father had 12 sons. We lost one. Uh, this is his favorite. I can't go back to the old man without his favorite son. And so then, this is the high point. He says, now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No. Do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Oh, my goodness. You see what just happened there? Judah. You talk about transformed character. He's come full circle. From going, being the selfish guy that says, why would we sell him? Why, why would we kill him? Let's sell him and turn a profit. To now, he offers himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for his brother Joseph. He says, let, um, for, for his brother Benjamin, I'm sorry, for his brother Benjamin. He says, let Benjamin go free, take me. Let Benjamin go free, take me. And it's the high point of the narrative, and it breaks Joseph. <laughs> he begins to weep and to wail, and he reveals himself to his brothers, and it's the happy reunion. But I want you to recognize here what just happened. Because this is a pre-incarnational story. You know, we, we talk about trying to replicate Jesus and imitate Jesus in our lives and be like Jesus and live out the incarnation in our own lives. Be repli replica replicas of Jesus in everyday life. Well, here's what I want you to see. 2,500 to 3,000 years before Jesus was born, the guy that was his ancestor stood right where Jesus would stand and said, let him go free, take me. Let Philip go free, take me. Let Scott go free, take me. That's where Jesus would stand and where the incarnation and the, the atonement all happens. Jesus says... You go free, I'll take your place. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's not accidental. That is God, the great choreographer of human events. He's manipulating human events to have that happen, and it is a testimony to what his, his son would later do. That's just cool. I'm just here to tell you. And it doesn't happen by accident. God intervened in human events to make that happen. And the same God that did it back then is still doing it now. Expect God to act. One last story and we'll be done. I was teaching an auditorium class years ago about this size. And right before the class started, a young woman walked in. Now, I've got to back up just a little bit. I, I try to have the practice of saying, God, I want you to use me. God, as I start my day, Lord, please use me today. And I used to sometimes pray that little prayer Lead me to some soul today. Oh, teach me, Lord, just what to say. Friends of mine are lost in sin and cannot find their way. So I want to be used by you today, God. And I prayed that prayer that morning and gone on about my business and not thought much about it. And I'm about to teach my auditorium class, and here comes a young woman into the class, and she's an a attractive young lady, striking, and I'd never seen her before. I said, hey, how are you? She said, good. And no, she didn't. 
She said, not good. She was supposed to say good. She said, not good. In fact, I'm, I'm having a really hard time. And I was shocked. I didn't know what to do with that. Because you're not supposed to do that in church, right? How are you doing? I'm doing great. And she told me the truth. Well, thankfully, class was about to start. <laughs> so I was rescued, and I taught my class, and we were in, a, of all things, a study of Genesis, and somehow we got talking about Genesis. And uh, class was over, and a group of people came up to visit with me after class, and I saw this woman walking out. And I know, now know it was the Spirit prompting me to go follow her out. And I said, young lady, you said things were not good. Could you tell me more? And she said, yeah, I can. And she said, but first I have an answer to your question. I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, in class, you got into this big discussion. And we got into a big discussion in class about was it an advantage to be raised in a Christian home where, where you had all the blessings and teachings of Lord from a very young age, or was it an advantage to be raised outside of Christ to come to know Christ later in life and you'd have more excitement about it? You know those discussions. And we'd gotten into that discussion. She said, I got an answer to your question. And I know definitively it is, a, it is an advantage to be raised in a Christian home, and I was raised in one, and I didn't take advantage of it, and right now my life is a train wreck because of that. And she said, my marriage is melted down, my husband's going to strip clubs, he's sleeping around, I don't know what to do. But she said, would you baptize me into Christ tonight? <laughs> I said, well, I'd be glad to. And we got a group of people together and took her into the auditorium and baptized her into Christ that night. And I was shocked by all that had happened. I mean, here she'd been raised in a Christian home, the Adamsville Church of Christ, McNary County, Tennessee. And she gets her life back together. An old boyfriend surfaces after the divorce goes through. Uh, I baptize him. They become this really stalwart family. And about two years later, I go back to her home congregation to preach a gospel meeting. And I tell them this story. Because what really dawned on me was after all that was done, after I baptized her into Christ and I went home, I realized, oh my goodness, God answered my prayer. I said, God, lead me to some soul today. And I forgot about it, but he didn't. And there it was. He, he, he brought this girl in front of me and I was able to do something in her life. And it was, it, it was really a neat thing. And, and she and her husband are still faithful to raise Christian kids. I went back to her congregation, you know, shortly thereafter, and I tell them that story. And after church is over, we're standing around afterwards, and everybody's grinning like I've said something wrong, you know? Like I've said Samson instead of Goliath, or I didn't know what I'd done. And so I said, what? Y'all are acting sheepish. What did I say? They said, well, we've been talking. You know, you told that story, and you talk about how God answered your prayer. (laughs) They said, we want you to know we've been praying for that girl for 25 years. He didn't answer your prayer. He answered our prayer. (laughs) And what dawned on me is he answered both of our prayers. And that's why I say expect God to act because here's the amazing thing about our God. If we get up just one day and say, God, I want to be involved in your kingdom work today. I want to do your will today. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Use me in any way that you can. Sometimes he'll say, come on. I got something I've been working on for 25 years. And I'm going to drop you right into the middle of it. That's the God that we serve. Expect God to act. We're going to sing a song here, and I don't know what it is, but if you need to respond, please do. We'll have people that can help you know.
to never give up on anyone, never give up on yourself, and expect God to act. And know this, we want you at Lubbock Christian University. Let's stand together and sing. Faith.